Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. And this is uh, Reply Guys. Yeah. We've, you know, we're still going. I was wondering the other day, I was thinking about um, the concept of a reply guy. I feel like most people do not know what a reply guy is because I was talking to a bunch of my friends in California and they were like, what is the name of your podcast? Why would you name it that? And I guess to me, it seems so normal because uh, everyone I know has the online disease. Yeah. Are your friends in California just like blissfully not online? No, and it was honestly really good. Um, yeah. So, you know, I was talking to people and I mean, like my friends from California, they're mostly liberals and stuff and you know, really nice people, though. Um, and yeah, it was just kind of weird because I was getting all like contentious and debatey for a second. And I was like, I don't really have to like ruin this. Like, yes, in my opinion, like it does suck that these people, you know, love Bitcoin so much and shit, but like... <laughs> But whatever. I mean, it's I think a lot about like the, you know, the extent to which we want to let politics strain our relationships or not. And there's a flip side to that, too, which is that like just because someone has really good politics, it doesn't mean that you are going to, you know, get along with them in other yeah. ways. We've we figured that out firsthand uh, in in many ways. But yeah, no, I. I uh, I've done the R and D. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> our uh, our R and D department here at Reply Guys is strong. Um, I I wrote a song with Emily a couple years ago. Literally, I wrote in the lyrics to the song, "Don't fuck your Reply Guys." Did I did I do that? No, I I knew better. I wrote it in the song, but right. <laughs> It was for the good of the show. Right, of course. <laughs> we are coming up on, like, are we at two years? We're now? at two years this week, I think. Wow. Yeah. Well, happy two years. Happy two, two years. Remember when Bernie Sanders was going to be the president? Oh, my God, do I ever. Um, yeah. What uh, What a two years it's been. What it's a two-year period. Uh, we've it's had been a wild so, fucking ride, my friend. It's friends. been a wild ride we've had so many good guests um we're still trying to get some of our our white whale guests on the show um little pearl little pearl my dad <laughs> no we'll never have my dad on the show that'll be well actually i mean we could if we wanted to have we wanted to have a a true conservative voice on the show um <laughs> one day can i since we do talk about the cats on the show sometimes can i talk can i vent about my cat Please. for a minute my cat albert has an anxious attachment style and you know so do i so i get it but this he can't handle being in a different room from me he like goes and like cries and stuff and it's he has like hardcore baby energy and i keep trying to explain to him like dude you're a cat like you're supposed to be a little bit independent here, but he's like, I don't know, he's fucking up, man. 
<laughs> well, love him. That but sounds he's, incredible. He's <laughs> that sounds yeah. to have a little baby who loves you, who wants to be around you all the time. That sounds great. Is little June? What is what's what? What is little June's attachment style? Today she has been very attached and like overly snuggly and just kind of acting like she's attention de- deprived, which she is not. But she mostly she will go from room to room with me pretty much also little pearl is different than her brother little pearl like pretends that she does not need to be around me at all times but she just will hang out in the same room as me all the time and uh she'll just sit like right next to me just to keep not, an eye on you yeah she's not like a snuggly little thing like yeah. uh, albert or whatever she does snuggle sometimes but usually only when i'm doing something right well, I, I think do... girl is an avoidant attachment style. <laughs> yeah, we have to stop projecting our uh, the the, no, per- the personalities so... of our boyfriends onto. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is that's not what I'm doing. This is real. Okay, they're, they're they've actually done research. Pets have attachment styles. Oh my they've gosh. done a study on All it. Right. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pull it up right now because this fucking fascinated me. Um, pet attachment styles so what they found in this study is that actually uh most cats are securely attached they did the um they did like the same type of test that they do with like babies to test test their attachment style so basically they they have them go to the the human and the pet owner go to a strange location and then um, like, you know, a lab or whatever. And then uh, they, they run, you know, a bunch of scenarios in one of them. The cat, uh, like the, the owner leaves mm-hmm. and, you know, the cat is hanging out. And so the avoidant cats, they act like they don't give a fuck. The secure cats, they like get a little upset and they move on. And then the anxious cats flip out the whole time. And then the owner comes back and then the secure cats are like, oh, I'm happy to see you. It's We're reunited. And the anxious cats, they can't calm down. And the avoidant cats are like, I never cared about you in the first place. But this is really true. Both dogs and cats have attachment styles. Well, I stand corrected. It's not the first time yeah. on this show that I have been corrected. So... <laughs> I'm sorry I ever doubted you, Kate. Um, no, it's true. It's I, I, you know, it's okay. I accept your apology, Julia. Um, <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit uh, about the book that I've been reading. A few days ago, while well, it was, uh, I finally started Patrick Radden Keefe's new book, Empire of Pain, which is about the the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma. Uh, the uh, the makers of OxyContin, um, uh, who many people, uh, many attorneys general across the United States consider to be the uh, originators of the opioid crisis. I cannot recommend this book enough. Uh, Patrick Radenkeefe is just an incredible writer in the first place. And... Uh, I was talking to a friend about who's also reading the book and had also read his previous book, Say Nothing, uh, which I also loved, um, that he makes kind of journalistic nonfiction read like a juicy novel. Like, he's just so good. And also, of course, it's an inherently juicy uh, story, but just really fucking horrifying. And I didn't realize that Arthur Sackler, who's 
the original like patriarch of the family um who was you know alive from like 1919 to 1987 he basically invented how prescription drugs are advertised like the kind of advertising that we see for prescriptions and and, and like and what like the the it's the TV advertisements no just the like cross the promotional the yeah, doctor yeah. like but just the entire strategy of big pharma advertising was essentially his idea and started with um valium so really horrifying shit um it, it is very like again the, the family tree is so uh layered and mangled and it's just a dizzying account of this terrible family one of my favorite stories about uh the sackler boss sackler um who is a a sackler wife um invited courtney love to a a fashion show and was going to give her like a hundred thousand dollars and courtney love like refused to go um and uh you know, she she said, here's what she said. She said, Joss is delusional, talking about her fashion line and private members club and their philanthropic, philanthropical arm. What about giving money to rehab facilities, paying for Narcan, or creating a non-addictive painkiller? Um, because, you know, Courtney Love herself as an addict obviously lost her husband to addiction. And uh, so Joss Sackler comes out with this <laughs> fucking statement that a male right. entrepreneur would not be subject to the same scrutiny, which is the most girl boss move of all time. I think that, that's just like, uh, that's an amazing oh level my of girl God. boss. I think perhaps only oh yeah, a few have achieved God. it. Yeah, few. 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 Um, yeah, it's, it is, it's really the the apex of being unethical this family has achieved um and uh, have you ever taken uh, any opioids not recreationally yeah. but like for like been prescribed them no i've had morphine after surgery um yeah and uh what's the other one the one that's like Oh, codeine. Yeah, I've had codeine after surgery, too. I, one time I had kidney stones and I was given intravenous morphine and that was powerful. Also, I think, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show, but when I got, I got my wisdom teeth out in 2010. Oh, damn. And was given like a two week prescription for oxycodone. Um which is crazy like now for now they just give people like extra strength ibuprofen yeah yeah um but it was like i don't know it was even though like a lot of this came you know a lot of the legal proceedings against the sackler family began into in 2000 as early as uh or the mid 2000s rather um I feel like people were, doctors were still over-prescribing opioids well into the 2010s. Yeah, I mean, definitely when I was in high school, my mom had a lot of medical problems. Uh, She had MS and stuff. And I remember that she was on Oxy and 
you know, for like legit medical shit, as is the case in a lot of situations. And man, she eventually, you know, stopped and switched to like non-opiate stuff. And it's like crazy how much better she feels. Like so many of the like physical symptoms that she was having were actually like a result of the opiates. And, you know, uh, it just is like, it, I don't, it's just criminal that so many people are being prescribed this stuff. How quickly you can, I mean, I, I'm not kidding when I said I had withdrawal symptoms from just taking it maybe like four times after Damn. my, uh, I got my wisdom teeth out. Like I had a splitting headache. I, again, I don't know how, I don't know. People can die from withdrawal. People don't know that either, that you you can like withdrawal from from opiates is so severe but anyways i really recommend this book to everyone i am trying i'm actively trying to get patrick red and keith on the show i would really like to read that book yeah um, we both read it we can make a, a bit i'll I'll, uh, I'll get that book at asap um and he he's a tentative yes on coming on the show so oh really so um, he already I'm, said yes Yes, I'm going to I'm going to hold he said later in the summer. So oh, I'm going to yeah. hold he doesn't listen to this show. So I don't care that we're talking about him. Uh, Usually when a man says later in the summer to me, it, he's, it means he's, he's never ghost. yeah, but he's, let's he's hope that's not true, yeah. But he he's been very nice, very uh very gracious and I I just think that it's like masterful reporting and uh, these people are super villains. Everyone should read it. And also, I mean, obviously, we talk a lot about the, the American healthcare system here on on the show. And one of the big issues with OxyContin was that pharma reps, sales reps, were telling doctors or leading them to believe that it wasn't as strong as morphine when, in fact, OxyContin is twice as strong potent as morphine damn and so i I was talking to uh, a friend about this last night that so much of our healthcare system is informed by people who never went to med school uh those are pharma reps and also um health insurance reps people who make decisions about what treatment is quote unquote necessary for a patient who again never went to med school dude i I had a huge crush on this woman in high school. I was like, I was, this is, it's coming back. Don't worry. I'll circle it back around really soon. But I was fucking in love with her for years. And she was like, not that gay, but she was a little gay. So we kissed a few times. But she was like, I was just like, oh my God, I didn't think I would ever be over her. And I wasn't even all through college because she was just like this. I don't know. I was so fixated. It was unfortunate. But what she did that finally made me get over her was she became a pharmaceutical rep. And well, that'll do it, won't yeah, it? Um, and, you know, it was kind of this crazy situation where, I mean, she was like, yeah, I'm a really hot girl. I get doctors to, like, prescribe uh, our medicine. And, that, you know, that's, like, how they do it a lot of times is, like, I'm not going to say all pharma reps are in this situation, but a lot of times it's fucking really hot. Super they young say, women. No, like, they say this. They say this in the book that, yeah. that pharma reps are disproportionately very physically attractive. Yeah, yeah. 
that's crazy that it's crazy that lives are, are getting ruined because some weird old man doctor wants to bang a 21 because, year old farmer because because it's hot girl summer yeah it's every you know every day for for farmer reps you um, don't have to be a farmer rep to bang i can tell you you know i've been having a really reckless summer part part of me is like no kate you shouldn't talk, be talking about that but i thought about all the things i've done so far and i've decided just being open about the fact that I'm whoring around right now is among the Hell least embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's, it is hot girl summer. It's yeah. hot girl summer. And on that note, um, I, I'm so excited for this week's episode. We've been, if I do say so myself, we've been fucking killing Crushing. it with our guests. Yeah, with the guests. Yeah. Um, this week I talked to Leon Nafok who is the co-creator of Slow Burn seasons uh, one and two and was the host of Slow Burn and is currently the host of Fiasco on the Luminary Network. And we talked about Republicans' favorite talking point, Benghazi. We finally did a Benghazi episode uh, two years in. So um, Leon was so gracious with his time and I just, um, I learned so much. I also prepared way more than I usually do because I knew so little about Benghazi, honestly. Um, but I learned a lot. I hope everyone else does too. I hope you like the interview. I'm very excited. Thank you so much, Julia. Please don't fuck your reply guys. Just listen to reply guys. Welcome back to reply guys today. I am so excited, uh, to be joined by one of my favorite journalists of history, the uh, the co-creator of Slow Burn on Slate and uh, Fiasco on Luminary, Leon Nafok, welcome to the show. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. Hi. Wow. So you have... Uh, the amount of work that you do is staggering, and I don't know <laughs> how your personal life may suffer for that. <laughs> Um, but you have done so far four seasons. This is your fourth season of fiasco and you did the first two seasons of slow burn, uh, where you have covered Watergate, the Clinton Lewinsky scandal, the Clinton impeachment, rather, uh, Iran Contra Bush versus Gore, um, and the desegregation of the Boston public schools. Uh, and now in season four of fiasco you uh have done an entire season dedicated to benghazi yep <laughs> that's right and so this question is why would you do that to yourself <laughs> we, we there's a joke in our in the trailer that we released uh not really even a joke which is that every time i tell anyone that i'm working on a series on benghazi they're like are you a masochist like why would you want to spend a year of your life in that world. Um, I understand that reaction, <laughs> but I have to say, like having done, you know, all the, all the work that has gone into this season, like it's a totally fascinating story. And, uh, especially if you sort of widen the lens as we tried to do and talk, not just about, you know, the domestic political scandal that followed the attack in Benghazi in 2012, um, 
but also go back and tell the story of America's presence in Libya um, and and Libya more generally, like mm. to go back to the beginning of the Gaddafi years and to sort of tell the story of how he became this, you know, icon of international terrorism and anti-imperialism <laughs> um, and sort of how that, you know, how, how the, how the path to Benghazi sort of starts there. Um, right. And so I learned, I learned a whole lot that I didn't uh, certainly that I didn't know. And, but also like we went to places where I didn't expect we would. Right. And so the, the first episode of the new season is uh, specifically uh, centered around Muammar Gaddafi. Um, and I think that he has just been this, you know, certainly for people uh, my age, millennials and younger, he's just like kind of a, a figure from history now. Um, but I was, I was fascinated to learn a lot of the, uh, a lot of the things that you reported on about him and how kind of almost mythical he uh, he was in the international consciousness uh, that their uh, Channel 4 news reporter in the UK called him a compulsive shopper of weapons, which <laughs> I thought right. was so funny. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, he was called the godfather of international terrorism, yeah. a young leftist strongman in his early days. Uh, you know, he was George... extremely he was extremely handsome in his early days. Like I don't know if you've seen videos of him as a young man, they're very striking. Look, he's, he was hot. We <laughs> young mama Gaddafi could get it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, we love a young leftist. Strong man. And, but, but also the, you know, I, it was funny to hear him called that just because I don't think, I, I just never think of him as a leftist, but he, as you reported on, uh, Gaddafi's Libya, Libya sent aid to the Sandinistas and to the IRA in uh, in Northern Ireland. So he did have he had some some leftist street cred. He also brought a lot of the money, the oil money uh, back to Libyans, uh, which seems to be a running theme of uh, Middle Eastern strongman dictators. Uh, yeah. They <laughs> bring the oil money back. Um, but why is Muammar Gaddafi? is so central to the understanding of Benghazi? Because if you sort of freeze the picture at 2012, all you see is, you know, this diplomatic presence that the U.S. has in Libya. Um, and I don't know about you, but like I had a pretty abstract sense of like what diplomacy was and like mm -hmm. what people who serve as ambassadors are like, doing in these countries. And you know, obviously it's different in every place. Uh, and the specific, you know, mission, uh, of the diplomatic presence in, 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 of the U S diplomatic mission, excuse me, the specific mission of the, the U S diplomats in Libya in 2012, um, is all tied up in the history of Gaddafi and how he, um, you know, after years and years of being this pariah and this, as you said, godfather of international terrorism, which was kind of like the bin Laden right before bin Laden, right. In the American imagination. Um, you know, after the beginning of the Iraq war, uh, the U S kind of reconciled with him and kind of the West brought him in from the cold. Um, and which is why, like, I don't know if you remember like videos of Gaddafi speaking at great length at the UN. Um, mm -hmm. unfortunately we couldn't fit that into the episode because of how our, 
timeline ended up being, but, um, you know, he spoke for hours, you know, to the, to the UN general, uh, at the UN general meeting and, and, uh, was rambling and, uh, eccentric and I mean, just an absolute leader in that sense, the first person <laughs> ever to filibuster at the UN. Yeah, um, exactly. And we love that for him, <laughs> but he, you know, I, I sort of was va- vaguely aware of the fact that there had been that Gaddafi had sort of attained this role that he was traveling the world and everything. But the, the, the key thing is that um, we sort of made this deal with him that he would be our ally in the war on terror and that he would help, uh, you know, capture Al Qaeda suspected Al Qaeda terrorists. And the, he went for that because they were his natural enemies anyway, like the, the sort of, um, you know, hardline Islamist militias in Libya had been, uh, and and in, uh, elsewhere in the region that had, had opposed him uh, and he he wanted to squash them. And so it was very convenient for him to sort of ally himself with the U.S. And in exchange, the U.S., uh, you know, got the ability to make money there. Like American companies were able to go back into Libya after years of being frozen out. Um, and so, you know, what happened after that is in, in, in uh, 2011, you had the Arab Spring when mm-hmm. Libya revolted against Gaddafi and he, he was eventually killed. Um, and so what Chris Stevens, the ambassador who, who died in, in the Benghazi attack, what he was doing in Benghazi, what he was doing in Libya in 2012, sort of the beginning, you know, the beginning stages of, of, of creating a relationship with this new Libya, this post Gaddafi Libya. Um, and it was a place of like great promise and hope uh, about democracy. And, um, Stevens like was very invested in that, um, in, in helping that process, you know, setting up elections and, and this kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, the attack happened and while it's hard to sort of draw any like definitive cause and effect between the attack and the fallout from the attack and what has happened in Libya since, but what has happened in Libya since is just like years and years of brutal civil war and violence. Uh, and, you know, one wonders sort of whether it could have been different if uh, Stevens, who was again, very, very, uh, in love with Libya and like in love with the idea of transitioning into, into a democracy, um, whether he, if, if, if he had, you know, if he hadn't died, like whether things would have been different in mm. Libya. So, and you, you touch on this in, in the first episode, but um, it has been sort of glazed over by history and our collective consciousness. The fact that, you know, it, it just the timeline sort of with Libya just kind of goes from like the Reagan administration to Benghazi. And, um, you know, as you said, the George W. Bush administration, uh, um, you know, brought them back into the fold when George H. W. Bush was hypercritical of Muammar Gaddafi Uh, called him like an egomaniac, volatile, a leader in international terrorism. Um, So was this just another instance of, you know, even apart from their possible, quote unquote, help in the war on terror, was this just kind of another instance of everything being sacrificed at the altar of the the dollar? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's probably an argument to be made that like just because someone is a pariah, for a long time doesn't mean they have to stay a pariah, like in, in, you know, to whatever, in whatever way that, in whatever, uh, in whatever way that a pariah, like maybe there is such a thing as 
rehabilitation, you know, at that level. Um, I'm sure there were great, I'm sure there were good arguments for, um, you know, reconciling with him that didn't come down to money. But I, I, I do think that like, that was a big part of it. Yeah. And also, <laughs> I think we had to forgive you know, a lot of things, you know, we had to like, look past a lot of things that, 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 you know, made any alliance with him pretty questionable. Yeah. And also he's just, you know, he's so dreamy that I can imagine <laughs> that that was really, it was really hard to say no to him once he gets in the room with you. That's why everyone let him speak so long at the UN. <laughs> they were like, this guy is so hot. Well, another story that we, we had to leave out because of the timeline issue that I mentioned before is that I forget in what year, maybe 2008, um, Condoleezza Rice went to Libya to like visit with him. And it turned out that he was like obsessed with her. Um, like oh my had God. almost like a shrine to her and he like wanted her to spend the night and he like, wait a minute. As... I have heard, I have heard this somewhere. Yeah. Deep in the... That's so kooky. Yeah. I think he like referred to her as his like African queen, something, <laughs> something, something that, something that betrayed his. <laughs> you absolute dog. <laughs> <laughs> that was his oh nickname before was the mad dog of the middle East. Oh yeah. That's true. Uh, honestly, that just makes him sound cool. <laughs> I, that's such a cool nickname. When I heard that, I was like, he sounds cool. Everything that you're all of the, like, he sounds like a, a, like from a Greek myth. Yeah. And I think there was something in that episode about how, um, there were a bunch of like Libyan novels centered around him, like crime action novels where he was one I of the central characters off the top of my head, but I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he, he's a know, natural star. <laughs> I mean, he also like wrote his own book called the green book. Um, yes. Which was like a kind of rambling manifesto uh, about what life in Libya should be all about. Um, I was like, I was at a bookstore the other day and I saw something called the green book and it wasn't even the other green book that we know that was based on that the movie, that movie was based on. It was a third green book that was like about eating vegetables or something. Oh my God. <laughs> There's too many green books and Muammar Gaddafi <laughs> did not know how to self edit. And those things are absolutely true. So, you know, Benghazi happened on September 11th, 2012. And that is, you know, next year will be the, the 10th anniversary. And it is, if you turn on any conservative media channel, you would think that it happened yesterday. <laughs> um, and so my question there is like, why has it had such longevity in the American political sphere, particularly in conservative media? Um, that's like, that was like one of our animating questions was how did this thing turn out to have such legs. Um, and I don't think there's just one answer, but, you know, a couple that have occurred to us. Um, one is that it just, uh, it, it, it rhymed so neatly with some pre-existing, pretty powerful pre-existing narratives, like mm -hmm. both about Obama and about Democrats in general. And then later about Clinton, Hillary Clinton, um, you know, the scandal kind of initially was about the Obama administration and Obama, the Obama, uh, administrations like foreign policy and security abroad. Um, but then once, and cause, cause the attack happened like a, just a, just a little bit before the 2012 election when, when Obama was running against Romney, um, and Romney was really aggressive uh, in attacking Obama over Benghazi. But as soon as Obama was reelected, like the much more valuable target on 
you know, for the Republican Party and for conservative media was Hillary Clinton. Um, well, she so is. Was, she was. She's always been their fave. <laughs> that's right. She, well, she was, and she was like very obviously going to be running for president. So it was like yeah. she seemed like a great opportunity to to to, to wound you know the the sort of expected Democratic nominee. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like with, when you just talk about the Obama administration, like you remember when he first became president, he like went to the Middle East and he like spoke in Cairo and he like made this big sort of put this great emphasis on how we should respect Islam, you know, that, that America is not a country that wants to be at war with Islam, that um, we respect other cultures and this kind of thing. Um, he was really, you know, he came in for a lot of criticism for that on the right because yes. they, everyone, uh, you know, everyone could sort of tell that he was implicitly criticizing the Bush administration, which yeah. like, you know, he was sort of saying like those days are over. Um but I think that and the Bush administration famously never did anything wrong. So <laughs> so they were they were right to go after. Him. <laughs> but they, they they wanted to like it was very, you know, a, a narrative about Obama was that he was like this like weak kneed liberal who like didn't take terrorism seriously and wanted to pretend like the world was this safe place. When, in fact, like, the, you know, anyone who knows how the real world works knows that terror is always lurking around the corner. Um, and so when there was a terrorist attack, like on his watch, uh it was, you know, it was like a told you so kind of moment. Um, it was, it was, it was easy to sort of point to his like Cairo speech and be like, see this guy who was like apologizing for American values and apologizing for America, like going, you know, begging for forgiveness from these Arab countries. Um, here's, here's what happens when you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was one big reason why it like stuck. Uh, and then with Clinton, you know, there was all, there were all these various subplots, which you hear about on the, on the podcast, but one of them had to do with, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, there, there was, there was a sense, there was, there was a sense that like the Obama administration and Clinton in particular was like hiding something that like they had tried to cover it up by initially saying that it was the result of a spontaneous protest as opposed to a, you know, organized terrorist attack. Um, there were, you know, emails that came out that in which, you know, someone who worked at the White House like was proposing language for what um, Susan Rice would say on the Sunday talk shows when it, when she was asked about Benghazi. There's a sense that like the the that they were all hiding something, and that was like a very pow- powerful Clinton narrative, right? Going back to the early '90s, the Clintons are the ones who you know don't aren't to be trusted. They they always lie. Um, they you know any at, at, at any hint of scrutiny they tighten up and protect themselves um and so i think especially when the email scandal uh erupted uh you know as a pretty much direct result of the of the benghazi investigation that just like totally again rhymed with like the the pre-existing um critique of clinton uh on the right mm. so i just think it like it had a lot of like mystery around it. Like the, you know, there were, there were enough little tidbits and it was hard enough to understand. You could kind of make it whatever you wanted. Um, I mean, just the sheer number of like allegations of like who, of, of what people did wrong is just like totally dizzying. You know, there's criticism of this person for giving a so-called stand down order when the attack was first happening. There's criticism of this other person for, um, you know, ignoring a security cable. It's just like, just like it had so many different, subplots for for cable news and 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 fox especially especially to to sort of explore yeah and in the i think the intro episode um there is a clip from someone saying that benghazi is like a rosetta stone for all of 
the world's problems and like America's <laughs> posture within it. And what do you think, what does that mean to you? <laughs> so that was in the trailer. Um, the trailer. Yes. It's probably slightly an overstatement, but it, it's definitely a defensible statement. I will say, I think, I think what, what the guy, what the, what the guy who said that meant specifically, I, I, I don't quite remember the context, but um, for me, the reason Benghazi feels uh, illuminating and that, you know, it tells us a lot about the world we live in uh, is that it sort of, again, I always, I always hesitate to be like, it was the first time like this happened. Cause like, you know, things don't really happen for the first time ever. They've always happened before, uh, but it definitely feels like a turning point in like the, the evolution of like the Republican party and the role that misinformation plays and the role that Fox news plays. Um, you know, as you hear, especially the later episodes, uh, which deal with, you know, the media environment around the scandal and, um, the, the sort of congressional machinations around like starting up a select committee, which is, you know, people have been talking about Benghazi for the past couple of days because, uh, because the January 6th select committee, uh, is being formed. Um, and there, you know, there are echoes to how a select committee was formed in, in response to Benghazi. Um, and I think you see in, 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 in the story, you, you see like a moment when, the Republican party kind of decided that shame and, 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 and like the, the importance of appearing of the, you know, John Boehner, who is like known as like an institutionalist who really cared about the credibility of Congress and, you know, didn't just didn't want to look shameless. He didn't want to, he was fine with, he was like a very shrewd and, you know, relentless political operator, but he also like had this, uh, restraint, I guess that, that we've sort of lost, uh, in the years since, uh, where he didn't, he, he was resistant to starting a select committee because he felt like there were plenty of other committees that were already investigating Benghazi. We didn't need another one just because the hardliners, you know, the, the, these sort of tea party, uh, loons, as he called them, you know, they yeah. were rattling his cage to start a select committee and, and really go after Clinton. He was like, we can't do that. We can't just, can't just start an opposition research firm inside Congress. Um, but then he was talking into it because he needed to throw that part of his constituency, a, you know, a bone. And he, he wanted to credit with, with like Roger Ailes, for example, at Fox news for starting the select committee. Um, and I think the result was that like, mm, it's, I mean, it's almost, it's almost hard to identify with him. Like looking back now, it's like you, you, you were worried that it would look political. Like why, why would you care about that? Like mm -hmm. now no one cares about that. And so I don't know, it, it, it strikes me as like, a story about the evolution of the, of the Republican party. Um, it's also a story about like the war on terror. Um, right. And like the, the, the role that America has played vis-a-vis um, -vis, like the people we refer to as Islamic extremists. Mm. John Boehner, I can only imagine how many cigarettes he was smoking uh, during, <laughs> during that time. Have you heard the story about him that he, uh, when he first discovered what Uber was that he no. accidentally, Okay, so he, his default settings were accidentally Uber pool and he didn't know. And so there were just like a Brand number is. of people in the greater Washington, D.C. area who got in an Uber pool and John Boehner was in there. Like, like, like repeatedly. Yes. Like he just thought that was how it worked. That's amazing. Yeah. Pretty good. That's amazing. pretty good stuff. Um. <laughs> That's just my my fun fact about my fun fact about John Banner, other than the fact that he is just smokes a million cigarettes a day. Yeah.
proudly, I think. <laughs> Just one of the last proud smokers. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so the the episode of uh, fiasco that that dropped today as we record this uh, on Thursday, July 1st, um, is a minute by minute breakdown of the events as they unfolded uh, in 2012. What was re- what was reporting on that like? Well, it was uh, it was actually like a really rewarding process because we initially were having trouble finding anyone who would talk to us who could narrate it to us in the first person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we talked to a journalist who David Kirkpatrick at the New York Times who you know, wrote a really definitive piece on what happened that night about a year after it happened. And we, you know, we interviewed him and he sort of walked us through, you know, an account of, of, of that night. And we were all set to use that, you know, as sort of like one of our, you know, one, we, we sort of think of like different voices, like helping us tell certain stories. And so like he was helping us tell the story of what happened that night, as was um, an FBI agent who investigated uh, Benghazi, like as part of a criminal investigation, um, he also sort of walked us through what happened that night. And so between the two of them, we kind of pieced together an account. Um, and then we just like had a couple of things break our way in terms of, you know, getting people to agree to interviews. Um, first we talked to, uh, Baker Habib, who was, uh, the best friend uh, in Libya, as I understand it, of ambassador Chris Stevens. He was like a colleague of his, they got to know each other during the, the revolution, um, and he, you know, he, he was there on the night of the attack and he was, had been with Chris Stevens, you know, a couple hours earlier. Um, he raced over to the compound when he heard that there was something happening there. Um, and he just told us, you know, an ex- extremely detailed um, and emotional story about, you know, finding out that he was, that his friend was dead. He told us a story about um, going to the airport where Chris Stevens's body had been, you know, taken and, and seeing him and speaking to him, you know, before, uh, before he was flown flown out of the country. Um, and then secondly, we, we got to talk to this guy named Scott Wickland, who was working for the state department as like a security agent. And he, in a lot of the early coverage of Benghazi, he was referred to as, um, Stephen's bodyguard, which isn't exactly accurate, but it's true that he was like, he was one of the security agents who was defending, who was protecting the compound where Stevens lived in Benghazi. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ended up being with Stevens and another person who, who died that night. Um, Sean Smith, who, who were both in the compound when it caught fire. And so Scott Wigland, you know, he like rushed them into a safe room where, um, he was sort of positioned on his, with one knee on the ground, um, and has gone out like waiting for the attackers who, who, who broke into the compound to enter the building. And he, you know, he thought they were going to die. He thought that the attackers were going to figure out that they were there. Um, but then they didn't. And, they, he thought they were safe, um, but then the building was set on fire. And so then Wickland had to um, basically try to get Stevens and Smith out of the building. Um, but the other problem was that there were people shooting at them outside. Anyway, um, Stevens and Smith didn't make it out of the building. They, they both died from smoke inhalation. Uh, and Wickland, you know, told us that story from as close up as one could ever imagine being, I mean, it was just Mm -hmm. like extremely vivid. Um, and yet also like, he's just a very direct, um, narrator. He like just just says what happened without a whole lot of embroidery. 
And so once we had those two kind of primary source voices, um, it was really became a much different and better episode than what we had before, where you still had some feeling of being kind of far from the, from the events. Um, cause you were, you were hearing about them from, you know, secondary sources. And so having those two, those two, those two voices really elevated it. And I think turns the episode into something, um, you know, Scott, Scott Wicklin hadn't talked to anyone before he hadn't, mm-hmm. he hadn't done any media interviews. And so, I don't know, it felt it's a rare thing to get to like present someone's story to the world for the first time. And how does that, you know, I, I can imagine that that, uh, speaking to someone like that, who was in such direct proximity to, to the events, um, it's, a, I would imagine it's very emotional for, for everyone. Does this like, is, did any of this like keep you up at night? Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can't pretend to like, I, I, I mean, look, I would get emotional listening to the, to the audio, um, you know, especially like, uh, you know, an early episode in the series, we talked, talked to this, um, woman, Iman Bugegas, who is an orthodontist, uh, in Libya. And she was telling us about, um, when, when the revolution started and how she and her sister and other people that, you know, were against Gaddafi, um, went out and like protested for the first time. And it was this, you know, unheard of thing to have public protest in, in, in Libya against Gaddafi. Um, it's like the first time it's like very rare, very rare for me to like get emotional in response to like patriotism, but like hearing her describe like what it felt like to like sing a song about how much she loves Libya. It was like the first time she felt like it was her country. I don't know. I was very moved by that. Um, wow. you know, does it keep, I don't think it, it what keeps me up at night is like, is this going to be good? And are we going to finish it in time? Wow, That keeps me up at night. (laughs) Hell yeah. That's an extremely honest answer. And I love it. Um, So you've done enough reporting now on a lot of really like defining scandals uh, in American political and foreign policy history that I would imagine a lot of the themes start kind of running together. It feels like it's all flowing through, you know, it is all flowing through one narrative. Do you, do you feel like these stories are becoming like a rat King of sorts um, (laughs) that are just kind of like all intertwined in the, the fabric of um, American over-involvement in, Oh yeah. (laughs) in the middle east and well so i had not done anything on the middle east before but like to your point like yes there are absolutely things that keep coming up over and over again uh there are people who keep coming up over and over again um you know there's a there's a lawyer who appears in the forthcoming episode of, of, of the benghazi season who represented one of the like whistleblowers who who who, who testified um in front of Congress about Benghazi. Um, she was sort of like a really well-known kind of anti-Clinton commentator in the nineties. And was like on TV with her husband, uh, who's also a lawyer, um, like 300 times during the month following the beginning of the Clinton scandal. Um, and she was just like in the mix back then, you know, another person this is a little bit different, but, um, David Brock, do you, does that ring a bell? Mm-hmm he was like this like right wing young right wing journalist who who wrote um this this very uh sensational piece uh about bill clinton when he was when he i can't remember if he was 
yeah, he must have already been president. Um, but it was about his time as governor of Arkansas. He mm-hmm. like this guy David Brock like interviewed these uh, state troopers who had been serving as Clinton's security detail in Arkansas, and they like had all these stories that they wanted to tell about Clinton, you know, having extramarital affairs, basically. Um, and we covered that stuff in Slow Burn too. Um, but then Brock sort of turned, you know, on the right at a certain point. And like became, you know, very pro Clinton, started raising money for them. He started Media Matters um, and Media Matters during the Benghazi scandal was like all about Benghazi. Like it was all hands on deck because they all recognized that Fox News especially was sort of using Benghazi as this weapon. Mm. And, and, and so Brock, you know, is this by his own design. Surely it's not a coincidence that he keeps popping up in this way. He wants to keep popping up. He wants to be in the mix. Uh but I think, you know, that's true about like someone like Roger Stone, who like has a cameo in the Watergate story, but um, comes up again in the in the Bush v. Gore uh, story and obviously comes up in any future podcast anyone makes about Trump. Um, so, yeah, there's just like bit players who 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 are in the, like the rotating cast. <laughs> Were there any such uh, parallels or rotating players between Iran-Contra and this that you could see? Oh, yeah. It does feel it does it's feel funny, sim- yeah. <laughs> sim- yeah. When you said you've never reported on the I know, movies, can we cut that uh... out? <laughs> <laughs> I don't it's funny, yeah. I did I, I totally fell out of my head that I did an entire year's worth of work on the Middle East story. I don't know why that happened. Um maybe that means we This is gotcha journalism. I know. Maybe me. it, maybe it means that we were like too domestically oriented on that season. We were definitely more domestically oriented on that season than we were on this one, like we, we made like a very deliberate choice to like kind of center Libya and kind of Mm -hmm. restore, you know, Benghazi's places, like the name of a city rather than the name of a scandal. Um, with Iran Contra, uh, I feel like maybe we did less of that. Like we definitely tried to like tell our listeners about like what was happening in Nicaragua when all this started, what was happening in Iran. But, um, I don't know the fact that I like so readily did like never done a story about the Middle East makes me think that we didn't uh, do enough on Iran. It was really the Oliver North podcast. Um, <laughs> it, it does seem like a reoccurring pattern in the posture of American foreign policy, like just especially in the Middle East, uh, like these themes that just kind of keep repeating themselves of the United States, you know, backing one group and then a dictator rises and then and. And I mean, and, you know, in Central and South America as well, I Benghazi has, as you alluded to, when it's referred to now, I almost I I don't think of it as as a city. It feels like doesn't even feel like a proper noun anymore. It feels like a verb and an adjective. And or you like picture that acrostic joke, you know, on Twitter where they like have Benghazi like in vertical <laughs> and then like all the letters stand for something. It's yeah. Like a popular like conspiracy theory meme. I got to get, I got to get more on the, on the conspiracy theory side. You of haven't Twitter. seen this. You haven't, you I haven't picture, seen like, it. Okay. Well, please send it to me. I even made a, yeah. I mean, I even made a joke about it on Twitter. Okay. Well, egg on my face, but I guess you don't see all my tweets. <laughs> No, actually, maybe you saw you, it and you were just like, ah, he's doing I don't get it for some reason. Yeah, he's there goes Leon again <laughs> with his wild ideas. Um, yeah, but I think it's in, it, it's gotten to the point where I think that if you pulled the majority of Americans and you ask them 
where is Benghazi? I don't think they oh, would yeah. be able to say Libya. For sure not. I, I, I mean, I haven't checked, but yes, I agree with that instinct. <laughs> um, it just, it has become this whole, it feels so much bigger than Watergate and it is, I think. Uh, and it's had, as I, as we, it has like a stink to it. I think like, it unlike, unlike Watergate, which is sort of like this classic American scandal, like Benghazi feels, I think has like the connotations of like grubbiness and um, bullshit. Yeah. And it makes Watergate look like quaint <laughs> by comparison, I think. Um, but... I think one, one answer to your question from before that I don't think I actually answered uh, about like what, what, what themes run through mm-hmm. the show. And I think one, one, one thing that comes to mind is that, you know, none of these scandals happen in a vacuum. Like they all happen against the backdrop of the previous scandals. And so I think right. both sides, like Republicans and Democrats, like learn moves and they learn defensive tactics and they learn offensive, you know, offensive tactics. Um, and I think with Benghazi, like you just saw a lot of pretty familiar steps kind mm-hmm. of uh, busted out, you know, like everyone, everyone kind of knew the rhythm that it was supposed to take. And um they knew that they knew the steps. And so it was like, it was, I don't want to act like, you know, there was nothing there to investigate, like four people died and it was, you know, it was for specific reasons that should have been investigated. But I, I think I'm pretty comfortable saying that like treating it like a, like a cover up or a, or a, you know, certainly like a deliberate act of indifference towards American lives, which is how it was talked about on Fox news. Um, it was pretty detached from reality. Um, but I think like having seen what works, you know, it was easier to sort of conjure, um, mm. this, this sense of impropriety, this sense of, of, of deception. Um, and I think probably the American public, you know, as be, be, be on the receiving end of it also has like certain trigger words, like you just know how to interact with a scandal. You kind of know the, the beats of a scandal. It's like, oh, this person's hiding something or this person's finally going to testify, you know, and, and you, you almost, you can, you can create a scandal with no center, really. Like one of the things that strikes me about Benghazi is that it's kind of hard to articulate like what exactly the Obama administration was being accused of. Like what, Yeah. there are answers to that question, but like they don't add up to one sort of coherent um case, you know, which is not the case, not, not, not the case with, with Iran-Contra or Watergate, I think. Yeah. So, you know, by, by the time Benghazi rolled around and, you know, the, the Obama administration did know the appropriate beats that this was going to take, like, why hasn't it died? Why wasn't that enough? I mean, I think it definitely is not what it was. I mean, as soon as, as Hillary Clinton was like no longer, player i think it probably lost a lot of steam i mean you definitely still see tweets about it um you know there's a there's even a hashtag maybe even a song called benghazi ain't going away um (laughs) see stuff pop up under that hashtag every once in a while um i mean i just think for some people who were probably already inclined to think of hillary clinton as a villain like Mm -hmm. this is just like the canonical example of her you know being disrespectful towards the military, which is, you know, not even quite coherent because these people who were killed, um, you know, they weren't strictly speaking military, they were state department employees or they were CIA contractors. Um, but I think it, it, it just like, 
the line was Hillary lied for people died or something. Oh Hillary yeah. Died, they, Hillary lied. They died. Something like that. Hillary lied for people died. Yeah. I remember yeah. that one. Um, They're good at rhymes. They know <laughs> how to do it. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there were like little phrases like that, that just like really became potent and persistent. Like there was, this, I think I mentioned earlier, like a stand down order, like you're supposed to someone, someone issued a stand down order during the attack. Like that was just like presumed as a baseline fact on Fox news. And then the question was like, well, who gave the stand down order and to whom? And then it turns, you know, over the course of the cover, you know, two, three plus years of coverage, like sometimes like this is referred to a standout order. Like when this happened, then other times it's like this other thing that happened that was also described as the standout order. And the point is there was, there just was, there just were standout, standout orders all, you know, all the time. And so it doesn't really matter what the particulars were. It's like the potent phrase and the implication that like someone in the Obama administration wanted these people to die or didn't care if they did. Right. Um, that's like the, the sticky part. Also, I, this is just a theory, but I do think that the particular phonetics of the word Benghazi totally 100%. are like just inherently conducive. Z. Yeah. Conducive to like being inflammatory <laughs> and just this like constant exclamation that is used on, uh, in the conservative news media. Um, yeah. It just sounds scary. Right. It's it like does. A scary sounding word. Even if, can, even if you don't know it's a place. Yeah. You can like, just sounds like a dinosaur. Most people don't know it's a place, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, I mean. Someone's up to no good in Benghazi. Exactly. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, without the way that the, the conservative media like really ran with this for all the reasons that you just mentioned. Do you think this would have just been kind of like a business as usual American foreign policy faux pas. I don't know. Probably not. I mean, it's not often that a that a that, a, that an ambassador is killed in action. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it would have been a big deal no matter what. But I think, I think it's transformation into a scandal as opposed to just like a foreign policy failure um, or a failure of you know diplomatic security. Um, that was that was very much like the result of how it was um, covered and how Republican lawmakers like weaponized it. Um, I don't think it would have been a, a nothing burger. I think it would have been a tragedy that like people took really seriously and there would have been, you know, all kinds of soul searching about it. But um, I just think it was, I just think it fits so neatly into very, again, like sort of pre-existing narratives about Democrats and about Clinton that like mm. it was, it was just a really useful um word to to just like you to kind of use as shorthand for all of their failings. And you know, you mentioned that it's, you know, there's an argument to be made that Benghazi, there's a direct line between Benghazi and Hillary's email scandal. And therefore mm-hmm. there is an argument to be made that um like Benghazi brought down mm-hmm. a possible Clinton administration. Do you subscribe to that? I mean, they didn't help the emails, <laughs> you know, like they, yeah. they, they definitely, um, they definitely were an effective bit of rhetoric for the, you know, during that campaign and the, you know, the, the, the sort of last minute Comey announcement, I think has been identified as like a 
decisive factor um, mm-hmm. by people looking backwards. I mean, having done the 2000 election season, I'm like a little bit skeptical of drawing any kind of cause and effect because you, when you, when you consider like how close the 2000 race was and how any little thing could have tipped it into one direction or, or another, you kind of realize that like, it's silly to pretend like, you know, what got it over the line, you know? Right. So, you know, maybe if it wasn't the emails, it would have been something else that dragged down her numbers. But um, yeah, I think it's a defensible position that like the emails cost her a lot of votes. Um, and if so, then, yeah, I think, again, if you, if you, if you're, if you see the email scandal as being a direct outgrowth of Benghazi, which, you know, it, it was, but I also think it's possible that the emails would have come out another way. Mm. What's weird about the emails, we don't need to get into this all the way, but like we talked about this in the final episode of the show, there were investigators on the Benghazi committee staff, like Republican investigators who saw the, saw the emails like months before it became a national story. Right. Like they, they were aware that she was using this email address and they just didn't think it was a big deal because everyone used private email and it was just understood that that was normal. Um, it was only really when someone mentioned it to times reporter that it became a, you know, a, a time story. Hmm. And that's what really drove it. It's not like the, it's not like the Benghazi committee, like officially revealed that, that Hillary Clinton was using this private email server. That was a, it wasn't necessarily something they thought was going to be a killer bit of, you know, oppo research. Yeah. Um, it just sort of, you know, it, t- it, it tumbled out of the Benghazi commi- committee investigation and, and the times, you know, made it into a story. I'm not saying it was a, not a real story, but it, it came out because of the times I, I would say. Do you think that this, that Benghazi has, has had any kind of visible effects on American foreign policy in the intervening years since? I mean, I think it definitely, um, you know, accelerated and amplified this trend in American diplomacy towards, you know, securitization. Like one of the ironic things about the Benghazi scandal is that the guy, you know, the main, the main guy who's associated with, with the tragedy, Chris Stevens, um, he, he, it's not that he was like a cowboy who like bucked all security concerns and, you know, ignored and did reckless things. It's not that, but he, he was definitely like on he was definitely the kind of diplomat who felt like if we're going to be locked up in a fortress and no one can come in or out of our embassy and we can't go meet people and we can't, you know, take sort of day-to-day risks, we're not going to get anything done. Like we're not going to, we can't do real diplomacy. Um, That's a real tension in that world. And that's not a trend that began with Benghazi by any means, you know, started in the eighties, I think. Um, But I think, again, like one of the ironies is that, Chris Stevens being held up as this martyr, you know, who was failed by Hillary Clinton's, you know, negligence when it came to security is just like, there's a reason why his family has never gotten involved with any of the attacks against Clinton, because they know that Chris Stevens would not have wanted more security. Um, right. You know, or would, would not have wanted to be the kind of diplomat who is, who was totally kind of protected from any risk. He wanted to take risks. Right. Wow. It's so there. It's so layered that as I'm sure. I always worry about like fitting too much into each episode. Like our episodes have gotten longer with time. Like, you know, I think Slowburn usually clocked in at like 40 to 50 minutes. And now we're generally like 50 up. And Mm -hmm. I I always regret when they get that long because it's just a lot to take in in one gulp. Um, 
But I also think like, who's going to listen to like a 12 part series on Benghazi? I just don't think that's a bit, an easier sell, you know, <laughs> even if the 12 parts are shorter and the runtime is the same as six episodes, I still think it's like an easier sell to be like, it's yes. just six. Yeah, for sure. Um, especially as, you know, obviously there's, there's so many things that led up to it. There are so many factors and events in history that led up to the events of that night, but it all, it like people think of it as it was, it was one night. Yeah. Uh, and so a 12 part series would be a lot. Yeah. Um, you're right about that. Um, <laughs> so just to wrap up here, um, I, you know, I would imagine that in researching a, a scandal, an event as complex and layered as Benghazi, um, even with all of those months and months of research, uh, that there are still questions that have been left unanswered uh, that you like, are, are there any lingering questions even after almost a year of working on this that continue to nag at you? Yeah. So there is something that nags at me. So I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, it's hard to draw any like <clears throat> cause and effect line between, you know, between what happened that night and how things have turned out in Libya. And it sort of implied that, Oh, like if maybe if, if, if Chris Stevens had been, you know, had remained, had stayed alive and had been, you know, had been allowed to do the job that he wanted to do in Libya. Like maybe things would have been better in Libya. Maybe there wouldn't have been such a breakdown, um, in, 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 in Libyan society. And that obviously is like, puts a lot, that puts a, that, that puts a lot of power. Um, it gives, it gives a lot of power to the United States, that conception. It's like, Oh, like if only we'd been there, if only we hadn't been scared off, like Libya would have been better off. And maybe that's true. Maybe not. I, I think as you were sort of, I think, you know, alluding to before, like we have a rich history of interfering with other countries shit mm-hmm. and, um, fucking them up. And I just think, you know, it's, 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 it's naive to think that, Oh, like, we knew best and we could have helped and it would have been fine if, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the mess in Libya that we have today, if, if not for this event and how we reacted, but you know, it's, it's a, again, it might be naive to think like, Oh, if only we'd been there. And so I guess the nagging question is like, how should the U S behave behave itself in the world like what role should we play um in other countries for you know in other countries domestic politics like if i really came to believe in chris stevens's um genuine investment in in libya's future like i i i i, I admire him <clears throat> sorry my voice is going um like i i, I admire everything i've I admire him based on everything I've read about him and heard about him from his friends um, and colleagues. Um, and so it, I think it's intuitive for me to think like, Oh, like he could have, he could have really made a difference um, if he hadn't been killed. Um, but you also realize like personnel it, it, that, that suggests that like who specifically is in these posts is so important. And it's like, yeah. maybe he would have been replaced by someone else and it's just hard to predict. So that, that sort of nags at me. It's like the presumption that, um, that we were doing the right thing there in the first place. And I just don't right. know if we were, or we weren't, I don't have a, I don't have an instinct on it. Well, you know, the posture in American foreign policy of meddling and interfering and fucking shit up. I think we've done it. 
we were the best in the game. We can hang our jersey from the rafters um, and we should try something new. I think I, I'll, I'll be bold enough to say that. America first. Um, uh, yes, absolutely. I'm an isolationist. Um, I'm a, I'm a real Dwight D. Eisenhower of a woman. Uh, but Leon, this has been so uh, illuminating and also depressing. And uh, I love your reporting. I I can't recommend um, all of uh, the seasons of Fiasco and the first two seasons of Slow Burn enough. Um, and I really thank you for coming on the show and talking to me. Thank you, Julia. It was really a pleasure to be here. Um, nice to put a face to your Twitter name. <laughs> That's right. That's where I live. Um, <laughs> is there anything else that you want to plug before you go? Uh, you probably have a lot of people who listen to your podcast who are into comedy, right? Oh, yeah. We have we have a podcast called Celebrity Book Club with Stephen and Lily, starring Stephen Phillips Horst and Lily Murata, um, two comedians here in New York, and uh, they read a different celebrity memoir every week and make jokes and talk about their oh lives. My God, it's the they're best. doing they're doing the Lord's work. They really are. I, it's really wow, amazing. that you know that that's good that you have like a nice balance between <laughs> Benghazi and celebrity memoirs. I'm happy for you about that. Um, you hear that? That's my oh dog. yeah. And on that note, yeah, he's probably going to keep he's probably going to keep going. So we should, uh, we should the timekeeper has <laughs> spoken. Uh, <laughs> Sorry Leon, about that. Th- thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, OHJuliaTweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is mine